Well, good morning. It has been, as I told Robin this morning, a year and a half since I've preached here, and I was going through uh, some of the notes of, uh, or some of the previous uh, times that I preached here, and I guess this will be my 15th time in the years that I have been an elder here. Um, one of the things that we are really happy about is the coming of a new pastor and consistency in the pulpit. And uh, nobody is more happy about that than I am uh, and Mitchell uh, because of our tasks of putting together the order of service that has to be done every week, which is a really a pastor's, the pastor's job, and he takes care of that. So that will be taken off my, off my desk, and uh, uh, it will be good to have. So please be in prayer. Uh, the 21st is the winter meeting of the Presbytery, the Ileana Presbytery, and uh, Scott Etberg will be coming up for that, and he will stand in front of the entire Presbytery and will be given their blessing, and then the first week of February, uh, Scott will be here behind this desk and uh, hopefully be there for uh, a good long time. Uh, but uh, it is a privilege to bring the word to you. Uh, several have already come up and said, oh, I'm so excited that you're preaching today. I hope it's a good one. Uh, and, to my re and, and, and I just responded, yeah, I hope it's a good one too. Um, you know, Rich Bettis, remember Rich, he was a, a, an elder here. And he used to call, or he calls quite frequently, and wants to know, how come you elders aren't stepping up? Uh, you, you keep bringing other people to fill the pulpit, and uh, uh, I just thought we were doing everybody a favor uh, by doing that. But uh, I will take my 15th time, and hopefully it will be uh, maybe another year and a half before I, before I come again. Take your Bibles, please, and stand and open to the book of John chapter 10. I picked this particular scripture verse, and then I thought of my dear brother Jim Claycomb, who uh, expounded uh, uh, the book of John for us, and, uh, and I, I thought, wow, I, I hope I'm not covering territory that he has, and, and as I look back in the notes, it's been two years I think it was March 18th that he preached on, on this, on this uh, portion of scripture. And, and I was relieved to see he, he preached the whole, ten, whole, whole chapter 10. I'm only going to do a portion of it. So I think I'm, I'm on safe ground. We're going to start with verse number 22. John chapter 10, verse number 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones, again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for the good works that you are doing that we stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a light unto our paths and a lamp unto our feet. It is truth. It is your word. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And every word that you speak, Jesus, we hear. And so, Lord, we give you praise today as we sit and talk about this scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have recorded here in the book of John uh, the last of Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem. It is now two, two and a half months since his last discourse at the Feast of Tabernacles which is recorded for us here in chapter 10 from verses 1 through verses 21. So there's a, there's, a, there's a division after verse 21 of several months before John picks up the story of Jesus again. In the first 10 verses, or the first 21 verses, rather, of chapter 10, Jesus is delivering his final sermon uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is recorded in several chapters previous to 10. Uh, and this particular sermon, he's talking about uh, being the good shepherd and the shepherd knowing his sheep. Um, it is about now three months uh, until he would come back to Jerusalem and lay down his life. Uh, he had been telling his disciples of this since leaving the Mount of Transfiguration on his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, and the, these verses, starting with verse number 22, uh, again, are about three months prior to uh, the crucifixion. 
which would happen in the spring of that year at the Feast of the Passover. Verse 22 tells us at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. And it was winter. John gives us a time stamp for this portion of scripture. He puts it sometime, as, as uh, theologians have exposited, this would have been sometime in the uh, beginning of what we call December. So December 1st to, through December 8th uh, would have been this, this time. Uh, the Feast of Dedication, we're told here in verse number 22, was not a mosaic feast. Uh, you won't find it in the Old Testament. This was not a feast that uh, anyone was required to be at. Okay, this was not one of the three major feasts. Uh, but the events uh, that we are pictured here or are celebrated here in the, in the Feast of the Dedication were really found in the intertestament uh, period, that period between Malachi and the book of Matthew, and you would have to read uh, in the Apocrypha, the, the books of First and Second Maccabees, to get an idea of why they celebrated uh, this particular uh, feast day. Uh, the feast was like the Feast of Purim. In other words, it was not a mosaic feast, but it was a feast that, that was celebrated nonetheless uh, within the Jewish community. It wasn't commanded in the writings of the Pentateuch. And John calls it the Feast of Dedication. We know it today more commonly as the Feast of Hanukkah, which often coincides with our celebration of Christmas. And this feast would last for eight days. Uh, it was a celebration of the Jews over uh, the defeat of the forces of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and this particular nasty fellow whose name meant uh, God manifest, was arguably the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Uh, he had forbidden the practice of anyone's religion other than a worship of Antiochus. And the Jews uh, in Judea suffered tremendously under Antiochus. Uh, many believe that he was the abomination of desolation referred to in the book of Daniel. Uh, he took over the temple, uh, the Jewish temple, and he renamed it. It became the temple of Jupiter. And women were prohibited from circumcising their children. And if any babies were found circumcised, they would be hung by their necks in the temple. Many men were killed. He would offer swine's flesh on the altar that was sacred to Yahweh. And he did all manner of abominations. And he committed terrible atrocities. In 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus uh, takes back over Jerusalem and again, he reclaims the temple, and he cleanses the temple and removes all the pagan symbols from the temple and uh, returns worship, rededicates this temple to the Lord. And uh, 
legend has it that when they set up the menorah in the temple, uh, they only had enough oil for one day. The oil would be, would be sealed in a, in a vial, and it would take eight days to make an, an enough supply or another supply and consecrate it according to rabbinic tradition. And so they only had oil for one day. And they poured the oil in the menorah, and they lit the lamp. And by the grace of God, that one-day supply lasted the entire eight days until a new supply of oil could be consecrated and brought into the temple. That's why when you look at the menorah in the Old Testament, uh, it has seven, uh, seven lights on it. But if you, if you visit a, a, a Jewish home uh, or go to Israel, you'll notice that there is a menorah with nine lights on it. That is the menorah that symbolizes the eight days that um, the oil lasted uh, during the time uh, back in the days of Judas. And this was then celebrated in perpetuity. Uh, in the Feast of uh, Lights, or as John calls it here, it was the time of the Feast of the Dedication. Then John adds this at the end of verse number 22 and 23. He says, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The colonnade of Solomon was in the extreme eastern end of the temple. It was the colonnade that you would enter into after you came into the gate beautiful or the eastern gate. And it was a colonnade that ran around the court of the Gentiles. And it was a, it was a place that a lot of the teachers would meet, the rabbis would meet and, and, and teach in, in those days. One of the things we, we have to keep in mind uh, is that the life of Jesus wasn't like it's portray portrayed by Cecil B. DeMille's uh, in a lot of his epics. Uh, we don't have the young, virile Jeffrey Hunter or Max von Sydow, uh, and, and you don't have music that, that is uh, mystically playing from the heavens and the sun shining all the time, and Jesus seems to float in uh, with these penetrating baby blue eyes and is surrounded by adoring crowds. Remember uh, that Jesus was a solitary man. And, and as I read this portion of scripture, I picture Jesus by himself. He didn't always travel with the apostles. He wasn't always surrounded by the disciples. And it's winter and he's cold, and he's wrapped in a cloak, and he's walking back and forth in the colonnade of Solomon. Remember his last conversation with the Jews in Jerusalem recorded for us in the first 21 verses here of chapter 10 didn't go particularly well for him. Matter of fact, it ends in verse number 20 with the Jews saying, he has a demon. 
He's insane. Who can listen to him? And he leaves. But now he's back. There's nothing in the text before us that makes me think that he wasn't alone. Perhaps he was even recalling the words as he walked in the temple of the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of this land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not here? Why have they provoked me to anger? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. The Feast of Tabernacles, or ingathering as it was called, is now two and a half months past. And in three months, Jesus will lay down his life. This is in a depression. Jesus was not a depressive person. But in some ways, in his own heart and in his own mind, it is winter. It is cold. And yet we are not saved. Isaiah 53, a great passage of scripture in verse number three says, he was despised and he was rejected by man a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And he walked by himself, and it was winter. Yet he knows what's ahead of him. He knows that some 50 days after the cross, the Holy Spirit would come, and about 3,000 souls would be added to the church. And it's not hard for me to imagine that it was here in the colonnade of Solomon that that happened. Not hard to imagine it was this very spot in the portico of Solomon where Jesus walked lonely and moved in spirit by the gate beautiful as we read in Acts chapter 3 and 4 that another 5,000 are converted and they come to Christ. But now, it is winter. Perhaps they recognized his walk. Maybe they knew him by the cloak. Perhaps they had spies watching him. Not unusual for him to be in the temple, but it would have been unusual at a feast of the dedication. They would have expected him to be there for the major feast, not this minor feast. Verse number 24, so the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The word used here in the Greek for gathered around is the same word that's used by Jesus when he teaches the disciples in Luke chapter 21, 20, when he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. It, it had the idea of a military siege. So this wasn't like, a, oh, hey, gather around you guys. They attacked him. 
They gathered around him like a pack of jackals. And their tone is not inquisitive. As if to gain some knowledge. This was a mocking accusation of the Christ. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It was not a... It was not a coming up to him and said, Rabbi, we have a few questions for you. They go right to the throat of Jesus. The simple word if used here is in the Greek called the first condition. The first condition is if and it is. And that's the first class. If and it is. In other words, another way you could say it was since if and it might be is the second class. If and it's probably not would be the third class. They are using a first class usage of this word if. They're leaving no wiggle room here. They want a clear cut case of blasphemy. They want Jesus dead. In other words, they're saying, how long will you keep us in suspense since you are the Christ Tell us plainly. Verse number 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, verse 25 and 26 deliver a scathing indictment to them. I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. So twice here he tells them, you do not believe. He's linking their unbelief to what he will say in, in future paragraphs. In other words, I already told you this ground's already been covered. I'm not going to say it again. I'm not going to answer your question. Now, remember John the Baptist asked a similar question, didn't he? Back in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist says, and it's verse number 20, it says, And when the men had come from him, John had sent these men from, from his prison cell. They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? In other words, are you the Christ? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who, had, who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he answered them, you go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He answers John 
by pointing to his miracles and to his works. Listen to what Matthew Henry writes concerning these verses. Henry said he gave them an an intimation of the danger people were in of being prejudiced against him, notwithstanding these evident proofs of him being the Messiah. Because here in verse number 23 in Luke 7, it says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So he answers the, 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 the disciples of John, but he doesn't answer with verbally. They ask him a question. They say, John has, has asked, are, are you the Christ? And, and I can almost see Jesus smiling and, and then maybe turning to the crowd and beginning to heal people. And deaf people are receiving their hearing and blind are receiving their sight and the lame walk. And then he turns back to John's disciples and he says, tell John what you see. And then he says to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. it's, It's a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke to John, who he would in later passages of scripture right right after that say there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Christ, Henry says, Christ's education at Nazareth, his, his residence at Galilee, the meanness of his family, and that doesn't mean they were mean people. Uh, it just means that they were poor, you know. The meanness of his family relations, his poverty, and the despicableness of his followers, which was quite a comment about the disciples by Matthew Henry. These and the like were stumbling blocks to many, which all the miracles he wrought could not help them over. In other words, they were looking at his lineage. They were looking at these ragtag fishermen that were his disciples. And they were ignoring his works. But of those who believe, Henry writes, he is blessed. For he is wise, humble, and well disposed that is not overcome by these prejudices. It is a sign that God has blessed him. For it is by God's grace that he is helped over these stumbling stones. And he shall be blessed indeed, blessed in Christ. And that's what Jesus is intimating to John. Blessed are those who are, who are not offended by me. This was the key question that even Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16 when he said to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers him and he says, you are the Christ You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in in heaven. Even some of the common people knew. John chapter 7, a few chapters before this, at the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 7, verse 31 says, Yet many of the people believed in him. He said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They're pointing to his works. 
And that's what Jesus is trying to say to these jackals. You don't believe me. If you don't believe my words, believe the things that you see. Because this was what was prophesied concerning Messiah. I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. Then Jesus makes a definitive statement for their unbelief at the end of the verse. He said in verse number 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my, among my sheep. Jesus doesn't say you're not yet among my sheep. He emphasizes they are not among his sheep. This is a statement of non-election. They have been passed over. They have been, they no, have no part of Christ because of their persistent unbelief. Jesus now briefly puts aside their hypocrisy and what is presented to us in the next two verses are three figures of speech called parallelisms. Now I'm not an English major, that is for sure. All of my college papers were proofed by my wife. Matter of fact, any correspondence to the session of any import, I let her go over and I am accused of taking commas and just throwing them across a, a page. But what we're dealing with here in the English language is something called a parallelism. Let me give you an example. Neil Armstrong, when he landed on the moon, used a parallelism. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So the parallelism takes two parts, and that's what Jesus is going to do here. Look at verse number 27, and it's unfortunate that we have the punctuation that we have here, but if you underline in your scripture or your Bibles, I, I, I encourage you to do this. My sheep, verse number 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. <coughs> if you underline or mark your Bibles, underline, my sheep hear my voice, and circle, and I know them. Underline, my sheep follow me, and circle, I give them eternal life. And underline, they shall never perish, and circle, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here is the go-to scripture to provide the perseverance of the saints. Or as R.C. Sproul prefers, the preservation of the saints. Notice in the first two parallelisms, they link the promise of Christ to the actions of the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep follow me. These are actions of the sheep. They hear. They follow. 
the parallelism is what Christ does for them. I know them. I give them eternal life. But notice in the first two parallelisms the importance that it's not conditional on what the sheep do. In other words, Jesus didn't say, if my sheep hear my voice, or even because my sheep hear my voice, then I will know them. And if they follow me, or because they follow me, I'll give them eternal life. That would be works righteousness. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's making a definitive statement. My sheep hear my voice. Period. End of sentence. Now, this might be a bit confusing as, as I taught the book of Hebrews in a, in a Sunday school class a couple of years ago here at this church. And the writer of the book of Hebrews makes a, uh, some statements here that may seem to contradict what Jesus said in Hebrews 2.1. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our blessing in our hope. And finally, Hebrews 4, 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Christian Life, writes this, the New Testament warns us by precept an example but some professing Christians may not persevere in their profession of Christ to the end of their lives why because they were never part of his sheep remember how Jesus talked about the sower sowing the seed and some fell on the rocky soil and it springs up but because it has no root, it withers and dies. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying. Make sure your seed is in good ground. Make sure you are part of the sheepfold. Louis Burkhoff, a Dutch-American theologian, defended preservation or defined preservation this way. He said, it is that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the works of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. Perseverance, preservation, is a work of God. And that's why Jesus could say, they hear me and I will keep them. Jesus makes this clear in the third parallelism. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here there's no reference to anything on the part of the sheep. It is all promise. 
it is all Jesus. And the second clause only explains and intensifies what's expressed in the first. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now that really ticked them off. As the very next verse in verse number 31 says, and they picked up stones to stone him. Now, this Solomon's portico wrapped around the court of the women and on the northern side of that portico was the entrance to the Sanhedrin up towards the uh, place that would be, would be called the, the court of the Israelites where they did sacrifice. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a compartment off to the north side which had entrances both from the uh, court of the women and, the, and also uh, an entrance to the court of, of, of sacrifice. And so it's not, um, it's not hard for me to imagine that a majority of these folks that are, are, are attacking Jesus are members of the Sanhedrin. And they pick up stones to stone him. He's blasphemed. They've got him. Because he said, I and the Father are one. Here again, Jesus is appealing to his works. Verse number 37, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me for? Jesus is a tough dude. Right? They're picking up stones. He knows what's next. And it's not good. And he stands toe-to-toe with them. And he says, um, let me ask you a question. Which, which of these works are you going to stone me for? The Jews answered him in verse number 33. It's not for the good works that, you're going to, that we're going to stone you for, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man make yourself God. So now they're acknowledging that his works are good. Remember in the past they've said you, you, you do these works by the power of the devil. So in order to avoid stoning he says to them uh, let's, let's get back to this work stuff. Which one of the works don't you like? Oh it's not the works. Not the works. So Jesus, the master tactician, appeals to the scripture as a way of argument. What is important here is to understand that he's probably, again, speaking to Jews, probably most from the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, lawyers, scribes. And he quotes for them from the Psalms. Verse number 34, Jesus answered them, it is not, is it not written in your law? And Edersheim points this out because I said, well, wait a minute. This is Psalm 82, which Dan made mention of. Uh, that's, that's not the law. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible were the law. But Edersheim says, no, uh, in, in some rabbinic writings, the, the law was, was the entirety of the Bible. Jesus says to them, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken, 
Do you say of him who do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He turns it around to works again. He appeals to the psalm that Dan read to us this morning, the psalm of Asaph, where God gives power to the judges of the earth. God even commands Moses on Sinai in Exodus 20, 28. You shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. These men taught that they were sons of the Most High. They walked around looking for respect because of their position and authority. They themselves referred to themselves as sons of God. And so Jesus says, why are you going to stone me? I teach also. His reasoning was impeccable. Once again, this pack of wolves were silenced, and perhaps by the time the crowd had gathered, the stones began to drop from his hand, their hands in the midst of this word from the Son of God. Again, they sought to arrest him, verse 39, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man is true. And many believed in him. The public ministry of Jesus in, is now over. In Jerusalem, he would only return as far as Bethany in the next chapter to raise Lazarus from the dead. Winter would give way to spring, and Jesus would once again go to Jerusalem. And there, as Luke 18 records, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise. Application. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will you call upon him whom they have not believed? Make sure this morning that you are settled with this. Don't be like the Christians in the book of Hebrews who were warned and fell away. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. For Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. Jesus in the book of John tells us you must be born again and unless you are born again unless you are born again you can't even see the gospel you can't even see the kingdom of God the gospel is simple Jesus Christ is the son of God eternally he came to this earth he took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh and yet without sin 
and he died for your sins in order that you could be those sheep who hear and follow. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Come to Christ, because as the apostle Peter preached, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He gave his life a ransom for many. He came and shed his blood for you in order that, as Isaiah wrote, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If this was a Baptist church, we'd have an altar call. Make sure that you are saved. Don't leave it to chance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord God, for your word. And we thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we are part of your sheepfold. We hear your voice. We follow you, not because we are righteous, but because you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit. And everything you do for us is a gift. We are so unworthy, Lord. We fall sometimes, Lord. But we don't fall finally. We may fall on the deck of this ship, but we will not fall overboard. And so, Father, we give you praise this morning for Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord God, for our security in him. And all of God's people said, amen.